Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, there were two boys, it seems, that were always in trouble in school. Two brothers. And they were creating so much trouble in their class that their mother decided to bring in the pastor of their church to have a talk with the boys. So he came to their house one day, sat the boys down, and and basically the pastor wanted the boys to know that God sees everything that they do, and God is not pleased when they misbehave. But he wanted to do it in such a way that the boys would come to their own conclusion. So the pastor started by saying, Boys, where is God? And the boys gave no answer. They just sort of looked at the pastor with blank stares. So the pastor got a little more animated and he said, Boys, it's a simple question. Tell me, where is God? Again, no answer, no response. Just bright, wide eyes. Third time, the pastor raised his voice, almost yelling now, and said, Where is God? And one brother turned to his other brother and said, Let's get out of here quick. God's missing, and they think, We did it. (laughs) Well, that innocent, childlike view of God isn't that much different than some adults' view of God. That is, God is missing from their lives, and they think, Let's make an image to remind us or replace God in our lives. Now you know something about kids. They're very honest when it comes to how they view the world. And they ask very honest questions. And parents become sometimes very uncomfortable with kids' questions like, well, where does God live? Well, how big is God? Well, what does God look like? Does He have a beard? Does He have a scowl on His face? What is He like? Because they want to know. I grew up in a church with lots of images, and I know that I'm speaking to people today who have come out of or have become involved with worship systems that include statues and images and icons, and so I am very sensitive toward that, and I even teach this with some sentimental kind of a feeling because that was my upbringing. But it's very simple, really. What is allowed in worship? And what is not allowed? What about crucifixes and crosses and statues? What if an image or a painting actually helps me focus on God? What's so bad about that? Why is that wrong if it evokes those feelings or reminds me of God? What about a picture that depicts Jesus? What's the big deal about this commandment? Well, let's actually look at the commandment and then we'll... Make some remarks on it. Go through it and teach it. The second commandment begins in the fourth verse. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
I'd like you to complete in your minds this sentence. I picture God as blank. Now you fill in that blank. I picture God as what? In your minds. You don't have to say it out loud. Because that's precisely what people will do and will say. I picture God not as a just judge, but I picture God as a very benevolent, warm, smiling, tolerant, you-can-do-anything-you-want kind of a being. Or I picture God as detached and aloof and not really involved in life as we know it. Or I picture God as some mystical being. Or, still others would say, I don't picture God as a him, but a her. I heard that last night on television. Gal said, now when I pray to God, I say to her, such and such. J.I. Packer once said, metal images are simply the consequence of mental images. So people will make images based on what their mental conception is of the God they worship. So that's why I say complete the sentence, I picture God as such and such. Now let's just by way of review, remember the last couple of weeks we've been going through the Ten Commandments, and we noted that there's two sources of information about God. Number one, revelation. Number two, imagination. And you fall in one of those two camps and one only. Either we take what God said about Himself in the revealed Word of God and all that we know about the character and nature of God is derived from biblical revelation, or we decide to throw that out and have nothing to do with it, and now we're left with our imagination. I think God is, I picture God as. So it's important as fundamental to go through the Ten Commandments. And this is the second one. If the first commandment says that God is to be worshipped exclusively, then the second commandment would tell us God is to be worshipped correctly. If the first commandment tells us the whom, then the second commandment tells us the how God is to be worshipped. If the first commandment is against false gods, then the second commandment is against false worship of the true God. False worship of the true God. Now I see really the second commandment is dovetailing beautifully with John chapter 4 where Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and if you want to worship God, who is spirit, you worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, I've decided that we're not going to take this commandment in one week, but we want to really understand it, so we're going to break it up in two. And this is part one. Next week, we'll continue it. And there's just a couple of things I'd like to look at with you today. First of all, the the prohibition itself, the commandment itself. What does it mean exactly? Second of all, the problem... That is, why do people break this commandment? Why did God think it was so important that it's number two on the top ten? So we want to look at the prohibition and the problem, what it means and why people do it. Go back with me to uh, just the first section of this, verse 4 and just a snippet of verse 5. You shall not 
make for yourself a carved image. So it necessitates a three-dimensional image, something you're going to derive out of wood or stone. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now what does that mean? That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's pretty easy to understand, but if you'll allow me, I want to flesh this out by taking you back to the Old Testament, just a little bit of something in the New Testament, and then to the modern era and how this is perceived, this prohibition. In the Old Testament, and we're in it, Exodus chapter 20, it's as old as you can get as far as Old Testament. This commandment isn't just given once and thrown out there. It's actually repeated, reiterated, and amplified several times throughout the the biblical narrative. We just read the first instance of that in verse 4, 5, and 6. But I want to show you something else. Go with me the same chapter to verse 18. Verse 18. Now the Ten Commandments are done. God gave all ten, but watch this. Now, it's all over, but it says, verse 18, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Now watch this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I talked with you from heaven. Did you get that? He didn't say, you have seen God, but you have seen that I talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. So you saw lightning and you heard thunder and you heard my voice speaking, but you saw no form. Okay, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. And if you don't know where that is, just keep turning right. You'll go down a few blocks. You'll see it. Chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 15. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb or Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire. Lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish in the water beneath the earth. Take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven... And when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. 
to be His people and inheritance as you are this day. Okay, same book. Go to chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. This is the last one I'll have you turn to. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Now let me set it up. God anticipates they're about to go into the new land, the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And the first thing He says you do when you get there is you go to the middle of the land where there's two mountains and you divide the people up and you read blessings and you read cursings. Now watch this. Verse 12, chapter 27. These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. So we see that this second commandment is given and repeated and amplified throughout the Old Testament narrative. Okay. It's equally important to understand Moses' reaction the first time the children of Israel broke this commandment. Remember how he reacted? Remember when he came down the mountain with those Ten Commandments? All shiny, his face is glowing. And he comes down and the people are doing what? They're worshiping a golden calf. And Moses doesn't say, well, to each his own. You remember what Moses did? He broke the commandments. Well, let me read you the verse. This is out of Exodus 32. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them. He took the calf which they had made. You can turn to it, but I'm going to be done by the time you get there. (laughs) He burned it in the fire ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and he made the children of Israel to drink it. That's his reaction to the first time they broke the second commandment. He had that bowl, that image that they had made, ground to powder, pulverized it, put it in the water and said, drink up. This is like reversed Alka-Seltzer. You take Alka-Seltzer, it settles your stomach. This would have naturally upset them. I think the message was clear. Idolatry ought to make you sick to your stomach because it certainly is sick in God's eyes. He made him drink it. Well, as time goes on, the 12 tribes of Israel split up, 10 in the north, 2 in the south. And when they break up, a guy by the name of Jeroboam sets up not one but two golden calves, right? One at Bethel, 11 miles north of Jerusalem, and one in the top of the country at Dan. And he tells the people in the north, these are the gods which brought you out of Egypt. And the Bible says this thing became a sin to the people of Israel. Okay, because of all these verses, all of these instances... Judaism has been called the aniconic religion or the worship system without icons, without images. According to Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, he said the ancient Jews were more ear people than they were eye people. It's an interesting description. They were more auditory than visual. Images distort who God is. So they were people of the book, the revelation that God gave of Himself. They were an iconic without the aid of icons. 
Now that's interesting in the light of Romans 10:17, which tells us faith comes by hearing, not seeing. Faith comes by hearing. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the Old Testament's view of this commandment. When we get to the New Testament, there's a little bit of difference. Well, you know, in the Old Testament, I counted the word idol, idols, and idolatry appear 111 times. In the New Testament, they only appear 22 times. And it could all be summed up, you might say, by John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. It's the last verse of that book. He simply says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. When Jesus Christ walked this earth and he confronted the Jews in Jerusalem, they had their own view of these commandments, which was very rigid. Now, you know who was the governor of Judea when Jesus was walking around the place? It was Pontius Pilate, right? Well, did you know that there were two instances in Pontius Pilate's career based upon him breaking the second commandment that in part led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? You see, he had been governor for five years, and then he made a couple dumb mistakes. Let me tell you about him. First mistake he made was he brought banners, ensigns, into the city of Jerusalem, big signs on poles that had an image of Caesar on the banner. And he marched these through Jerusalem. When the Jewish leaders saw these, they demanded those signs be removed because he violated the second commandment. Now he, Pontius Pilate, wasn't Jewish. What do they care? They cared because it was their city. You know what they did? They sent a delegation from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is the headquarters of the Roman government at that time, demanded Pontius Pilate remove those ensigns. He refused and herded them into that great theater in Caesarea. Some of you have been there with us. And said, I'm going to cut your heads off. You know what the Jews did when he said that? They laid on the ground, bared their necks and said, cut away. Go ahead, chop our heads off. We'll die for this one. But you remove those signs. Now Pilate knew that he was dealing with what he thought was an irrational group of people. They won't stop at anything. This is so important to them. So he removed them. So not to create the drama. Second mistake was a few years later. It seemed that Pontius Pilate had special shields made for his soldiers in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem. And on the shield was an image of Tiberius Caesar, the new reigning monarch in Rome. He wanted to ingratiate himself with him. He had these shields placed in the Antonia Fortress and later on in the palace of Herod in Jerusalem. The Jews revolted wrote to Caesar, demanded they be taken out. Caesar rebukes Pontius Pilate personally, saying, boy, you can't govern these people very well. This is two times that they have rebelled against you. So this put him now on probation. So that by the time Jesus Christ is on trial and Pontius Pilate reviews the case, he says to the people, I'm going to let him go. I find no fault in this man. You remember how they responded? They said, if you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. You know why they said that? Well, let me finish the statement. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. For whoever makes himself a king is not Caesar's friend. 
This was a not-so-veiled threat. Caesar has your number, Bubba. This is going to be strike three against you. You already messed up twice. You're on probation. You let this guy go. We're going to let Caesar know about it. So that's when Pilate capitulated to the will of the people and said, do whatever you want. I find no fault in him. I wash my hands. So let's move from the Old Testament through the New Testament to modern times. How do modern worshipers view the second commandment? Well, frankly, most don't really care. I think the view of most modern worshipers is, hey, if it leads me to God, if it reminds me of God, what do you care? Right? But do you remember Paul when he was in Athens and he saw all those images of all the gods of Greece and it says he was grieved in his heart by what he saw? And you could say, well, those were false images of false gods. But then he stood on the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And this is what Paul the Apostle said, Acts 17, 29 and 30. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. So naturally... The first question people have in hearing all this is, isn't it okay to have art? What about engravings or or, or what about drawings? After all, the astute Bible student would say, what about the tabernacle? I mean, didn't God violate his own commandment by having ornate depictions in the tabernacle? You remember on the veil in the tabernacle were drawings of cherubim, angels. They dwell in heaven. On the menorah, knobs and flowers. On the ephod of the high priest, engravings of cherubim. And what about the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant? It was a graven image of two cherubim with their wings outstretched and touching each other. Did God violate His own command? Nope, He didn't. And here's why. None of those things represented God number one. And number two, according to Hebrews 8 and 9, the tabernacle was an earthly depiction of what was going on in heaven. Simply a reminder of what was going on in heaven. So here's the, here's the synthesis of it. Here's the bottom line. Here's the irreducible minimum. This commandment refers to worship. Really doesn't have a whole lot to do with art, but it has everything to do with worship. And the commandment is saying this, God is spirit. And nothing material could ever represent God adequately. If God is spirit, then anything people make in the material world by necessity could never encapsulate or represent all that God is. So the idea here is not art, but I'll say this. If art leads to an image in your mind that lessens who God is, it's wrong. Any image that lessens who God is and His nature and character is wrong. And I'll give you an example right out of the Bible. Let me refresh your memory. A story that happened in Numbers 21. The children of Israel were in the desert. They're murmuring. They're complaining. They did a lot. And God sends snakes into the camp to bite them. And they start falling off like flies, right? They start dying. So God says, Moses, quick. Get a brass serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And as people look to the brass serpent... By faith, 
they'll get healed. That's the cure. He does that. It worked because the people looked at it by faith. But did you know that the people of Israel didn't throw it away? They kept it as a sacred icon for years. And as years went on, they didn't look at that icon the same way they once did by faith. They looked at it superstitiously. So we find it again in 2 Kings 18, where we're told, King Hezekiah broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. You see what was happening? The symbol became the substitute. They weren't looking at it by faith anymore. It's just a symbol of what God did in the wilderness, but they were worshiping that symbol, and the symbol became a substitute. That can happen, by the way, with any symbol. It can happen with the cross. People have crosses and look at it superstitiously. (gasps) I forgot my cross today. I'm not wearing it. Okay, so what? So what? It's my lucky cross. They have imbued it with some kind of mystical power almost. By the way, did you know the cross was not the first symbol of Christians? Never was. The the cross doesn't even appear, the crucifixion scene, as a depiction in Christian art until the 7th century A.D. It was never an early symbol. It became a symbol, but the earliest symbol of Christianity was a peacock and an anchor and a fish. There were several of them. You find it in the catacombs in Rome. And for a very good reason, keep in mind, the cross was an implement of torture, capital punishment. The earliest Christians 2,000 years ago wouldn't have hung a cross in their assembly any more than we would hang an electric chair in ours. But what the cross came to represent is wonderful and holy. And, and um, you know, people have noticed over the years... I notice you don't have a cross on your church. What kind of a church doesn't have a cross? I'm not, I'll say I'm not opposed to it. You find a great cross to put up there. I'm not opposed to it. I know what the symbol represents. But I'll tell you one thing. We preach the cross. And I've met a whole lot of people and even churches who get hung up on having a cross, but they don't live under the cross. They don't preach the cross. And they don't live a witness of Jesus Christ. It's all about the sacred symbol and the icon. Listen to the words of George MacLeod. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as the steeple of a church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and Latin and Greek at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. But that is where he died. That is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be and what church people ought to be about. So I think we've exhausted that first point, this prohibition. We understand what that means. It was an image constructed for worship that people would bow down to in their worship system. Well, let's discuss the second, that is the problem. Why are people driven to break this commandment? God must have known something that it's number two on the top ten list, and it's repeated and amplified throughout the Old Testament. 
there's a few different problems that would push people toward the use of images. Number one is peer pressure. Now, keep in mind, pretend for a moment you are a Jew living in ancient Israel. You've just been delivered from Egypt. Surrounding you all day long were images of false gods in the pantheon of Egypt. You just got out of that. You come into Canaan, you find the same thing, only different names, different gods. It's very tangible. And the belief system of ancient Canaanites, Mesopotamians, Egyptians, is that the spirit of their god actually resided in the image that they made. So once they carved it out and they dedicated it to their God, whatever happened to that image happened to the God. That's why you read accounts of ancient peoples washing their gods and dressing up their gods and placing food in front of their gods because the God would derive energy from that food. So that the spirit of the God or goddess resided in the image that was crafted. Well, the children of Israel come from that to that They don't have any images. So they see a very tangible religious system around them. They see gods and goddesses dotting the landscape. And the people of Canaan say, well, where are your gods? Here's our gods. And over time, that peer pressure caused Israel to worship Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech, etc. In fact, in Psalm 115, there's a hint of this peer pressure. The psalmist writes, Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? And then he answers it, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Can you hear that peer pressure? They get into Canaan and people say, Well, where are your gods? Here's our gods. Psalmist says, I'll tell you where our God is. He's in heaven. He's sovereign. He made it all. You're worshiping a bunch of false nonsense. And our God does whatever He wants. Second problem. Personal loss. When a person makes an image, he's making a statement. He's saying, no longer do I have the conscious awareness of the presence of God. I now need an image to remind me of that God. And casting that idol is a desperate measure to recover that which was lost. You see, anybody who lives in communion with God doesn't need a reminder. It's not like you're walking to the house one day and you see your idol. Oh, yes, God. I'm glad I saw that because I had forgotten. (laughs) See, if you live in communion with Him and He is a reality in your life, you don't need a reminder. Friedrich Jacobi in the 1700s, a German philosopher, wrote something I want to share with you. Where idolatry ends, there Christianity begins. And where idolatry begins, there Christianity ends. How would you feel if somebody said, I want to spend some time with you? And they walked into your presence to spend time with you, but they brought an image of you. Well... Skip, I want to spend time with you. Now watch this. Hey, I have a few things I want to share with you. Now you're standing there and you're watching this person carrying an empty-headed plastic doll. Wouldn't you feel a little put off? Hey, wait, 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 I'm over here. You want to talk to me? Don't talk to the... Talk to me. Have a relationship with me. You don't need that image. We have a, an ongoing thing here. 
Let me just back up and define an idol in modern terms. Because any of us could think, you know, this is a great message, but it has nothing at all to do with my life. I don't bow before images. I don't carve things in my backyard and set them in my front yard and worship them every time I leave the driveway. An idol is simply anything or anyone that replaces God. Or let me restate it. Anything or anyone that takes supreme devotion away from God. It's an idol. You can drive an idol. You can live in an idol. You can date an idol. You can marry an idol. You can raise idols. If anyone or anything takes away supreme devotion to God, anything can become an idol. So John said, little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's a third problem that I think drives people to this. And that is, it's the problem of an invisible God. We just have a hard time relating to a person we can't see. We're a visual people, right? Samuel said, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, but we look at the outward appearance. We're visual. How do you have a personal relationship with a person you never see? Remember the story, H.G. Wells' story, The Invisible Man? The story is that a guy through science discovers how to make himself invisible, which sounds really cool at first. You can be in places and listen to conversations, find out what people are doing, push things around in the room, and it sounds pretty fun. After a while, the invisible man discovers it's not so fun because he discovers people don't trust somebody they don't see. So Isaiah says in chapter 45 of his prophecy, Verily you are a God who hides himself. Moses said, Lord, just show me your glory. I've seen your acts. I've heard your words. I've seen the thunderings. I want to see you. We can relate to that. Like the little boy who said, Mom, are you sure God's up there? Yep, I'm sure he's up there. Well, don't you wish, Mom, he'd just poke his head out every now and then and show himself? We all do. That is why every Christian has a deep longing for Jesus Christ to return. That's our hope, is that one day we're going to see him face to face and be totally changed. No longer do we have to live by faith, but we'll be able to see him. We don't have to hold on to a promise in Scripture and say, I can't see it, but I believe it. You'll see him. Titus chapter 2 looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the bottom line is people want a God they can see and touch. And one day you will. Until then, we walk by faith and not by sight. Let me close on this thought. Invisible doesn't mean unavailable. Just because you can't see God doesn't mean He's not there or available to you. Peter said, Whom having not seen, yet you love and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The most important thing is not that you see God, but that God sees you. David declared, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths... Behold, you are there. But I can't see God. But He can see you. But how do I know? He knows all about you. 
And that's where you reach out with that touch of faith and get in touch with all of the promises of the invisible yet powerful God. Years ago on television, it was done live and televised. It was a circus act, and the part of the act was a Bengal tiger show. And they had a large cage in the middle of the circus ring filled with Bengal tigers and tiger trainers. So this is how it worked. They'd all get into the cage. The doors would be locked shut. That'd feel awkward. The spotlights would come up. The cameras would zoom in. And the show would begin. And one night it began just fine as the trainers put these tigers through their paces. Then suddenly, without warning, all the electricity went out. And it was pitch black. Now imagine you're the trainer locked inside of a cage in total darkness with Bengal tigers. You know, they're cats. They can see you in the dark. But you can't see them. What a relief when those lights 30 seconds, long seconds later, went on. You know, God can see in the dark. You can't see Him, but He can see you. There's no secrets with Him. And He's not a tiger. But he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is all-powerful. And all of his resources, whether you feel or see or not, that's all irrelevant. God says, this is who I am, no other gods. And all of these other accoutrements to worship, you don't need. We have a relationship. We'll explore this much further next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have briefly looked at this commandment what it means and why people are driven to it. And we've just discovered that you have the right to call the shots to make the rules as the creator, as the sustainer, and as the savior. You have the right to declare who you are to us and how you are to be worshipped. As the Lord Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I pray that our worship would be pleasing to you, that our hearts would be right before you. And if we have lost any relationship or closeness with you, that by faith we would get it back again and walk in step with you and have a real and abiding and daily relationship with the living God. For we walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.